This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas 2036. Eight out of 10 voters in Texas want the legislature to act now on education, healthcare, and workforce. Learn more at texas2036.org slash poll. And Fairmont Austin. Experience downtown luxury at Fairmont Austin with exclusive rates and long-term stay offers for government employees. For more information, visit fairmountaustin.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for January 27th, 2021. I'm Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by Abby Livingston back in DC with her Bruce Springsteen posters in the background. Howdy. Julian Aguilar um, in El Paso with the, I believe that's a Mick Jagger poster in the background. It's, it's a Keith Richards poster talking about Mick Jaggers. Okay, gotcha. I apologize. Apologize to Better. Keith. <laughs> and Ross Ramsey with a map of Texas in the background. How are you doing? And some woodwind instruments, it looks like. Some, some old clarinets. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, um, this week, we are now on Wednesday, a week into the administration of Joe Biden. And it's been a pretty eventful week with a bevy of executive orders across a range of topics. Um, you know, kind of the, the first flurry of activity of a Democratic president trying to undo a lot of what was in place under President Trump. Um, one area that's really affected Texas the most and what I want to talk about uh, today is the immigration policy. Uh, Biden has revo revoked Trump's plan to exclude non-citizens from the census count. He's bolstered DACA, ended the so-called Muslim ban, blocked the deportation of Li uh, Liberians who have been living in the U.S., halted the construction of the border wall, and so on and so on. Um, Texas has gotten involved in this, uh, filing a lawsuit to um, uh, block one of the Biden executive orders related to um, halting some deportations. Uh, the most recent news on this is that Texas in, has very preliminarily been successful getting a temporary injunction blocking that order. Uh, that will be in effect for, you know, until the loss, at least until the lawsuit moves along. Julian, I want to kind of start with this lawsuit. Can you tell us a little bit about what, where, what that order said and, and where it stands right now? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess to nobody's surprise that lives inside the, the great state of Texas, it took, you know, what, 72 hours to, to file a lawsuit. We knew this was coming. You know, uh, the Attorney General Ken Paxton and Governor Abbott had already said, you know, we're going to keep a close watch on this. So what the the lawsuit on um, Tuesday, uh, a federal judge down in Victoria in South Texas, um, the Southern District of Texas, put a 14-day hold on uh, the Biden administration's proposed 100-day moratorium on, on deportations. And, and this moratorium was part of a broader executive action that directed the Department of Homeland Security and its agencies, um, you know, in that umbrella, uh, including USCIS, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, uh, Customs and Border Protection, to review their policies. So in short form, this was trying to do a throwback back to the Obama era, where they had a lot more discretion to decide who to put in removal proceedings, 
who to who to remove from the country um, and things of that nature. So um, the the rest of the the review, I guess, is still active. But yeah, this was this was one major component of it, the deportation moratorium. So it's on hold for 13 more days now um, until uh, the court you know, moves forward with the overall case. There's gonna be a hearing on a preliminary injunction and we'll go from there. We've seen how long these things can drag out. So it's kind of unclear what sort of roadmap the Biden administration is gonna use. Um, but to your point, you know, the Biden administration also put a pause on new construction of the border fence, the border wall, which was uh, former President Trump's, you know, one of his, his prizes on his campaign, you know, from sea to shining sea went down to, well, okay, we'll do it where we can. That went down to about 450 miles, um, as opposed to, you know, we have just alone in Texas, we have 1,254 miles of border. So obviously fell short of that. What's unclear is what happens to the pending contracts. Um, on that, but at least for now, um, most construction has stopped while that's trying to be figured out. Um, but like you said, you know, this was, you know, Paxton and laying down the first, the first shot saying, you know, we're gonna make it as hard as we can for the Biden administration. Um, and, you know, less than a week into, or, you know, just now a week into it, we're seeing that that's coming true. Yeah, I mean, kind of Texas reverting back to its uh, traditional role during a Democratic presidency, you know, filing lawsuits, trying to stymie the agenda of the, um, the, the, the Democratic president. I mean, Ross, probably fair to say we'll, we'll see more of these lawsuits coming forward. Oh, I think that's right. You know, before, you know, Joe Biden's Bible was cold, um, Ken Paxton was saying, you know, we're going to be opposing this administration. We're going to be suing them. Within 24 hours of him being sworn in, he filed the lawsuit that Julian is talking about. And, you know, uh, this all echoes a Greg Abbott line when he was attorney general during the Obama administration. He had this regular line in his speeches. I think we've quoted it a number of times. I have a pretty easy job. I get up in the morning, I go to work, I sue the Obama administration, and I go home. Um, I don't remember the exact number of suits. I want to say 46 or something like that uh, during the Abbott and Obama overlap. I would expect at least given the sounds that they're making right now that Paxton wants to break the record. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, Julian, going back to these orders that Biden has signed, I mean, what, what do you think, which of those do you think will have the biggest impact um, in terms of immigration policy and specifically kind of, you know, in Texas? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think the order, um, that we're talking about that includes the the hundred day moratorium as as I said you know that the moratorium was what one facet of that order the order instructs DHS to pretty much review its its policies um, we have to remember you know under under former President Trump's executive action everybody in the country without authorization was fair game right um, so when when you take out folks you know that have pending cases maybe their case has been pending for five or six years. They're obviously a not a high priority. You know, when you sort of review all these cases, um, I think that I think that's probably going to have the biggest impact. Uh, it's all going to take some time, obviously, but um, you know, there are 1.3 million pending cases, removal cases before the immigration courts right now. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of yeah. cases. <laughs> and and you know, to your point about the Texas legislature saying, well, you know, Democrats are back in office, we have to you know, fight, fight the federal government again. I mean, they didn't really take their foot off the gas under Trump with respect to how much money they were allotting for border security. So at the state level, I figure things are gonna stay, stay the same. Um, 
And then, you know, we're still, we still have to figure out what happens with the FRIT Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DACA program, um, because that is a lawsuit that Biden actually inherited um, from the Trump administration, also um, courtesy of, of Ken Paxton in the state of Texas. So, you know, I think we're going to have to see how things move forward on these to see how they're going to craft any future policy. Um, but I think that review of, of removal proceedings and enforcement, who you detain, who you let go, who you say, okay, you know, here's your notice to appear before a judge, who you give that um, notice to appear for with an ankle monitor, you know, there's, I mean, there's just myriad factors that go into to consideration, but I definitely think um, that this, this package that asked ICE and DHS and CBP to review their policies is going to have the biggest effect. Um, and, and I'll, you know, I'm not, I'm not the census guru, but obviously, you know, being able to count those folks in the census is going to be, is going to have a, a major impact, um, you know, especially with the session moving on this, you know, this year and, and talking about redistricting. But I think those two probably immediately, and then with the border wall, that's going to have an effect, but more, you know, just kind of like on what people are seeing and, and the physical effect, um, especially for the folks down in South Texas, you know, they're, they're cheering the fact that construction is stopped or supposed to stop, but, you know, what happens to the partially built wall? What happens to this property that's still in litigation? Um, what happens to these pending cases before the DOJ on you know land seizures and things like that? Julian, are you hearing um, when you know speaking to people, uh, whether it's immigration lawyers, people who who work with people who are trying to or have crossed the border, has anything has, has the the change been felt yet? You know, on the ground in terms of you know attitudes or or who's who's coming or, or anything like that, you know, with obviously Trump made uh, a, a firm stance against immigration, a, a, a kind of big part of his his persona does, does has just the change of presidents affected things at all? Yeah, well, so I mean, talking to immigrant rights groups, talking to immigration attorneys, uh, speaking to folks that crunch the numbers, they all say, look, this everybody's happy with what's been attempted or what's been done so far. But uh, to your question, the actual effect on the ground um, hasn't really been felt yet, right? Obviously the moratorium has, has been put on pause. Even before that, I talked to some immigration attorneys and they said, we're, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what, what we're doing. We haven't any gotten any more guidance. Um, they weren't sure if that dealt with people that are in detention, if that dealt with people that are outside of detention. Um, one great example of, you know, Biden doing something, but it not having an effect is the migrant protection protocol. This is the program that required asylum seekers to go back to Mexico and wait for their immigration hearings. So, um, again, last week, the administration said it's not going to enroll new people into that program, but there's still more than 70,000 people that are currently in the program that haven't moved yet. Um, and that has to do with another order related to COVID-19 that gives Border Patrol, CBP, the power to immediately re remove people without them even applying for asylum. So it was kind of like a hurry up and wait sort of situation. In policy, it you know made some people feel better. Um, you know, I think it, it was a little bit of a sigh of relief, but in practice, nothing really has moved yet because there's just, it's not just one component that needs to kick in. There's several moving parts on these things, which is why um, people can say, I'm gonna do this on the first day. Sure, you can announce it and you can sign a paper, but when you actually see things moving on the ground is, is a different story. Yeah, sure. And, you know, the, you talk about the, the Remain in Mexico policy. I mean, this is what was having people, you know, having to kind of camp out right on the other side of the border and, and oftentimes not safe conditions and, and things like that. Right. Yeah. And that, that sort of paranoia that came with that just increased with the, with the pandemic that Mexico is still, you know, dealing with as are we.
Right. Ross Julian mentioned the uh, the census uh, question here of, of citizenship. And obviously this is a has a big impact in Texas in a lot of ways. Um, one, just possibly in the number of, of congressional seats that, uh, that the state could have. But, but the census, you know, seems to be complicating things a little bit as, as lawmakers, uh, you know, start looking toward dealing with redistricting this session, right? Well, you know, there's all the political effects of this. You know, you're going to get possibly, uh, now that the Biden administration is saying include every human in the state, you're probably going to get three new seats in Texas. Um, so that would take us to 39 in the House. And then the legislature divides the state into 39 exactly equal pieces. You know, they're supposed to have exactly the same population for Congress anyway. And for the House and for the Senate, they're supposed to be the same size within five or 10 percent, five percent either way, actually. Um, and then the State Board of Education. So there's a big political fight there. And, you know, honestly, most people don't connect with that, don't really um, think about that. But one of the places where that we're dealing, one of the things we're dealing with right now that's directly tied to census numbers is vaccines. If the United States has X number of vaccines, uh, they send a different number of vaccines to Texas, depending on whether they counted 30 million of us or 26 million of us. And you know, this, this comes through in highway funding, it comes through in Medicaid funding, it comes through in all of the services that the government provides. It's, it's the political part of it is important. And, you know, we cover the heck out of it. And it's a big, you know, fight that determines representation and everything. But there are a lot of ramifications uh, of a miscount. And they particularly prey on states where, it, you know, some people find it easy to discount parts of the population and to ignore parts of the population. Ross, you know, one, one big question around the census and redistricting has been, are they even gonna, going to be able to do this this time? I mean, it's no secret that the pandemic has slowed down the census count. There have been various delays and issues that have come up. The legislative session runs through, I guess, the end of May. And, right. and what are you hearing? Is there optimism that this can even happen in the first half of this year? I, I don't think there is. You know, the great soothsayer on the Senate side, Dan Patrick, said, you know, months ago, told the senators or told a crowd that he was telling senators, look, if you're going to take a vacation this year, take it after the end of September, because I think we're going to be around for a while. Um, it looks like we're going to get we'll get the reapportionment numbers, the thing that says Texas has this many people in it you know, relatively soon. But what they need is the detailed information about how many people live on this block or in this city or in this county. And that probably won't be here until late April at the earliest. That's not enough time for the legislature. So I, I think it get, gets kicked into the summer. I'm reluctant to predict the future, but I think most of the most of the people that I've talked to in the legislature and around this process think it's going to be a special session issue. Well, that that's not great for our vacation plans either. So we'll right. see what end of September, right? <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, let's take a, a quick break, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this. But first, we'll hear from our sponsors. This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at Arlington. The University of Texas at Arlington is the third fastest growing doctoral public institution in the country by the Chronicle of Higher Education Almanac. For more information, visit uta.edu. And Texas Motion Picture Alliance. Our Texas media production industry is a key component to diversifying our economy adding countless jobs and economic impact throughout the state. Support Texas media production. We produce great returns. Find out more at txmpa.org. Okay, so 
when Biden was inaugurated and, and took all these actions related to immigration, I mean, another thing that we heard was an intent to bring up the idea of comprehensive immigration reform again in Congress. And, and Biden has some ideas he would like to play out, um, but it will go toward a House with a, you know, smaller than before Democratic majority and a Senate where you know, technically speaking, there is no majority, although Democrats have control due to the tie-breaking vote of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Abby, what do you think? What do you think the chances are? Is it is it too optimistic for, for Biden to think he can get this through this Congress anytime soon? Well, I'll just kind of give my personal view of it. I, I moved to Washington in April 2006, and that is when President Bush made his first push on immigration. And I was sort of thunderstruck by the um, how hot that debate was. And it wasn't just because that was my first day in Washington. I think it was literally that hot. Um, this has been an unresolvable issue for my entire time in Washington. And so I am just um, inherently skeptical anything will get passed because I've seen it fail so many times before. Um, additionally, I mean, one of the amazing things when I look back on that time was Lindsey Graham was one of the biggest proponents of um, a comprehensive immigration bill. And I can't even imagine where he would fall. I, that, that does not seem like a likely posture now. Um, but I think the question for Biden is he has to try. And the reason he has to try is that um, when President Obama first came into office, he had the financial crisis and he had what effectively were two years of democratic control. And he decided after the crisis um, to put all of his political capital behind healthcare. Um, and he did, uh, and then he lost control of the house. Um, and he did not make an, a really robust, strong push for immigration uh, an overhaul. And so that is something that has stuck in several democratic constituencies since then. So I think Biden has to give this the full try that he can, even if it, he comes up with nothing, because I, I just don't think there's enough patience um, to wait till uh, there's a, you know, more conducive Congress. Um, I, you know, I think the debate has only hardened in the last 15 years. Um, every TV ad anyone listening to this podcast knows in a Republican primary is probably going to be about immigration and who can get to the further right on that. And so um, I think this is just going to be a very difficult thing to pass, but I think the president will try. Sure. I mean, you know, we saw this from uh, one of the Texans running for president uh, last year, you know, talking about uh, repealing the the section of the the code that made uh border crossing illegal border crossings a, a crime um you know it seems like since when you mentioned bush brought this up both sides have maybe moved farther apart rather than closer together is there any indication from our two senators cornyn or uh cruz that that they'd be willing to to play ball and negotiate something with the biden administration or, or get on board with with something that might be pushed for from, from democratic leadership? I, I have not done my due homework on that, but my instinct is um, probably not Cruz. Uh, and I'm happy to correct myself if that's wrong. Um, and with Cornyn, um, I, I've, we would have to wait and see. I think a lot of that will have to be where Mitch McConnell falls on this. Um, but my first blush is probably not. 
Um, but Cornyn is a figure I have a difficult time predicting where he lands on things. So um, I'm, a, I'm a little less certain on that one. But, um, I, you know, and I think it also will come down to the state um, U.S. House delegation. And I, I just don't see a lot of enthusiasm in Democratic or in Texas Republican circles for um, immigration, any sort of immigration reform at this point. Sure. And, 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 and perhaps the um, the eagerness of our attorney general to to be seen as as fighting against the uh, the actions being taken by Biden might be uh, a sign of, of where the Republican Party is in the state. I mean, Ross, you know, one thing we're hearing from the state level is uh, interest in continuing to spend money on border security. Right. Uh, kind of a, a popular thing to bring up when there's a Democratic president. Well, it remains in the budget and, you know, it sort of gets caught in a very weird way on another of the governor's big things right now, which is uh, he's railing against Austin and other cities about cutting law enforcement and cutting police and, you know, um, frankly, cutting the DPS out of border security would amount to a defunding police move or an arguable defunding police move on his part. You know, maybe he wants to relocate some of those to the city of Austin, um, but the but the border security stuff is still in the budget. And, you know, it was pitched originally, Julian, catch me on this if I'm wrong, but it was originally pitched as, you know, we just need to do this for a little bit and, you know, kind of secure things. And, you know, at the time they were, you know, that's when we were, we had all of the to do about alleged caravans and all of that. The presumption was that they would come back and, and they haven't. Yeah, I mean, and and to, to Ross's his point, you know, um, yeah, that's what they said when they did the first eight hundred million dollar infusion, right, on on border right. security um, over the two year span. They said, well, you know, this will take care of attrition, right, the folks that are, that are retiring out, but we need more troopers. But yeah, if you surge them, I mean, then when you when you pull back, right, that means do they lose their job? Do they lose this bonus that they got for signing on with DPS? Like, what do you do with these folks? So I think that's been at least part of the conversation on why they have to keep this up, right? They can't really just kind of yank the chain back. Um, and also to Abby's point with respect to just the, the change in, in tone, on the 2013 immigration effort, the, the Gang of Eight bill also included John McCain, Marco Rubio, and, and Jeff Flake, who are obviously, you know, um, that, that's not that's probably not gonna be a factor this time around, so the dynamics have changed. And I think we're, we're cruising corn and come in, just sort of knowing them over the years with respect to anything having to do with the border, the immigration reform bill doesn't have a lot of border security components on it um, as far as walls and as far as more boots on the ground. It's got a lot of technology um, advances, but um, I, I, you know, if you don't, it's, you know, if, if you don't have anything that says we're going to have, you know, X amount thousand more border patrol agents or walls or this and that, I mean, I think that's where a lot of people start to look away or start to give, give the other side problems. Abby, speaking of our uh, two senators, we had a vote yesterday uh, impeachment related, right? Uh, a, a movement by, correct me if I'm wrong, Rand Paul, right? To dismiss the, the trial against our former president, Donald Trump in the Senate. And we saw Ted Cruz and John Cornyn both voting in favor of that move to dismiss. Were you, were you surprised at all by that decision? Um, yes, probably not with Cruz, but with Cornyn, I was a little bit agnostic on where he would come down, but he has been raising questions over the last week about this, this process. Um, what sort of in the Washington ecosystem shocked the system was uh, Senate 
majority minority leader, I'm not sure what his title is right now, Mitch McConnell um, supported it. And McConnell had been sending up some flares that maybe he would vote for impeachment. And this was seen as a proxy vote. Basically, Rand Paul raised a procedural question of, is this constitutional to impeach a president after he's left office? And um, the, the sense was if McConnell went for it on impeachment, he'd just been elected to a full year term, he would give cover to other Republican senators to move on it. Um, but he didn't. And so only five uh, Republican senators voted with the Democrats to get to overrule that point of order. And um, none of them were from Texas. And so it was a real window into this. It's also a window into the defense of Trump, as it appears, which is going to largely be procedural, it sounds like which is there is something inherently flawed with this process. Um, and we are seeing that out of both of our senators. Uh, Cornyn recently tweeted um, regarding the founding fathers, you can't imagine them embracing an open-ended procedure to pursue political opponents. Um, and then Cruz was much more flippant on Fox News uh, Tuesday night, comparing it to um, the movie Groundhog Day, effectively saying this is just what we apparently do during uh, January is impeach. And so, um, but the counter to that is, you know, what does this say to future presidents um, and their last time in office? And I was struck by a quote from uh, a columnist at Real Clear Politics named A.B. Stoddard. And she said, she wrote, the permission that acquittal would provide to future demagogues and, demagogues and authoritarians is an invitation to future sedition and insurrection. An acquittal only makes Trump more powerful. It is likely the end of impeachment as a constitutional tool as well, which threatens the check that Congress has on the executive. And so what you hear both sides of this debate saying is that just this impeachment will weaken the tool of impeachment in the future. Um, and the other side is you know, essentially effect, uh, acting in bad faith. And so um, you know, it, it's just a very strange situation because it does fall a year, you know, almost day to day after the events of last year. And so um, I, I never knew I would, you know, have a sense of the routine mechanisms of impeachment. Um, Monday night, we saw U.S. Rep. Joaquin Castro from San Antonio walk the article of impeachment over from the House and the, to the Senate as an impeachment manager. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if the fact that we've had two of these is... Um, an indicator of the dysfunction of the last four years or this particular president, president but um, it is certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's been quite something to watch. It's, it, it has been interesting to watch. And I think the point you made about the, the attacking of the procedure and the, the constitutionality and, and all of that is an interesting one. You know, we haven't seen any, many Republicans really defending the actions of Trump but really wanting to kind of steer this in the direction of whether this is the right way to approach this or whether, you know, um, this is even allowable by law um, to kind of, you know, almost make the actions on January 8th and, or January 6th and what happened on January 6th almost beside the point. Um, another thing I've just found kind of amusing about this, uh, it's sort of meaningless, but I've just had a chuckle about it, was that uh, Mitch McConnell and John Corner have both use the phrase, this is a vote of conscience in the, uh, the discussion of this, which of course echoes a famous comment by Ted Cruz way back when, before Trump was president about voting your conscience. So apparently we had, you know, voting our conscience in November, 2016, and now at the end of Trump's turn, another vote of conscience to decide whether he will ever be allowed to run again if he were to want to. Vote your, um, your other conscience. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, Abby, I mean, seeing that vote, it was 55 
uh, or sorry, 45 senators voting to dismiss. You, of course, need a two-thirds majority in order to convict in the Senate. So, I mean, is it fair to say that we the writing's on the wall here and we, we know how this is going to end? I mean, my instinct is yes. Yeah. Uh, I have been wrong many, many times, but um, I think that was the takeaway yesterday. That doesn't mean that we won't see some fluctuation, but the five senators who sided with Democrats have already pretty much been on the record expressing their distaste for what happened on January 6th. It was Ben Sass, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, that crew. And so, uh, you know, I think two things are, two competing senses of momentum are happening, I think. One is the longer Trump is out of office and the longer Biden is in, it seems like we're moving away from that day. Um, but the flip side of it is um, anyone who's on Twitter following a certain set of reporters who are following the, the, um, the, the court documents charging these people, this only gets more horrific as the details come out. These, they're just extraordinary um, documentation of these people. And, and a lot of these alleged people have confessed to their crimes in really profound ways on social media. And so I do wonder if witnesses are, you know, if there are witnesses, if video footage is being shown, uh, you know, how much of a squeeze does that put on some of these Republicans? But the fact of the matter is what yesterday telegraphed to people like me was there's no going back for the Republican Party. This is, this is the National Republican Party is defending Donald Trump. And we've had many moments like that, but this one is, the, the reason this one mattered is that we, Trump is no longer president and this is clear that it's about as much the future as January 6th. Sure. Well, there's no time for us to look back either. I think we're at the end of our, our time slot here. So thank you to Julian, Abby and Ross. Thank you to um, our producer, Todd and Justin and Jackson, and our sponsors this week, Texas 2036, Fairmont Austin, the University of Texas at Arlington, and the Texas Motion Picture Alliance. We'll talk to you all next week.